We're going to do something a little bit different than what we had planned. I know you thought we were starting in Titus today, but we're not. Um, we will, Lord willing, be there next week. But uh, this past Monday when I woke up, um, just some things I was reading and dialoguing with my wife, and I just really felt like I needed to do a Sunday talking about spiritual warfare, uh, talking about the fact that we have a real enemy, an adversary who prowls around. And this will not be a message that we're going to be able to even like do a deep dive into spiritual warfare and the fact that we are in a battle, but it's like dipping our toes in the water. I just feel like we need to do this as a church. And next week, we will, Lord willing, start our series in Titus. You know, A.W. Tozer said, and I believe rightly so, that the most important thing about you or I is what comes to mind when we think of God. What comes to mind when you think of God? I, I think that, I mean, I would agree with Tozer. That's the most important thing about us. But I would also say something that's very important is that we understand who our enemy is. If, you, if you're going to war, if you're going into battle, you want to know a little bit about your enemy. If you're, if you're a fighter uh, in, in the MMA or a wrestler, you want to know something about your opponent. You want to know a little bit about them because what you, when you learn about them, when you know something about them, that gives you a bit of an advantage. If you don't know anything about them, you're at a big disadvantage. I think we need to know a little bit about our adversary. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, think about that. Think of the imagery. He says, be sober-minded and watchful, like pay attention. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, how many of you have ever gone and seen lions at the zoo? Ever seen them? Like, they're scary, but you're not scared. Why? Because they're behind a gate, right? They're, be they're behind bars, and like, I mean, they roar, and it's intimidating, but, but yet you're not, you're not scared of them because they're behind bars. Have you ever gone to the zoo and seen rhinoceroses? Rhinos, right? We've seen them, right? One time we were at the zoo in Chicago, and one of my daughters dropped their iPod. That was about, some of you younger, you don't even know what iPods are. But dropped their iPod into the rhinoceros pen. And it was like, they were standing over a wall looking in, and it was like one of those walls that, like it was stone, and it went down to like, almost like a moat. And then it would go across and back up like two feet, and the rhinos ran on this grass. And one of my daughters dropped their iPad or iPod down in there, like this little moat area. Now, there was no water in it, and there was rhinos over uh, along the wall, like in the pen, and I guess rhinos are pretty dangerous. But what's a father do? His daughter dropped his iPad, iPod, and so you're like, well, should you go like, ask someone from the zoo to help you with that? But you know that's going to be this big ordeal, right? It's going to be this long ordeal, like, you know, maybe they won't even give it to you, and so I estimated the distance from the top of the wall to the bottom would be that I could reach back up and get a hold of it 
and pull myself out, and I thought I was faster than the rhino. I could get in there, get the iPod, and climb back out before the rhino. And you're like, well, did you? Absolutely. <laughs> Jumped in. And, uh, but I have to admit, like when I jump, I don't have a great vertical. If I can get my hands on it, I can pull myself up. But it's like, can I get there? And like, got back out of there. And what's that point have to do with anything? It's just a cool story. And I wanted to tell it. <laughs> because I was talking about lions in a zoo. That's what made me think of it. But your adversary, what is an adversary? Someone who is actively and continuously hostile towards someone. An adversary is someone who is actively and continuously hostile towards someone. He says, your adversary, the devil, what does it mean to be? The devil means slander, Satan, slander, an accuser, a liar, deceiver, a destroyer. He prowls around, like, think about it. He's prowling around Seeking whom he may devour. What does it mean to devour? To consume, to destroy, to cause complete and sudden destruction. We need to have a good understanding of our adversary. Just like we must have a good understanding of who God is. And it must be shaped by God's word. To be equipped for warfare. To be equipped to go into a battle. We must know who we are fighting. Now when it comes to talking about spiritual warfare and demons and the devil, there's C.S. Lewis says there's two extremes. He said there was two extremes. There's a part of the church that becomes like consumed with demonology and, and spiritual warfare. And they think that everything bad that happens is some sort of a spiritual attack. And they're almost terrified. It's almost like they believe that God and Satan are locked in this battle of like dualism where we don't know who's going to win. But we know who's going to win. We know who's already won. We know that Satan is a creative being, and Erwin Lutzer wrote a book. It's called uh, God's Devil. We need to understand that in the end, God is in control of even Satan. So there's this one group that is kind of obsessed with it and consumed with spiritual warfare and demonology, but then there's this other group that almost acts like it doesn't even exist. Pay no attention. And both are equally harmful and equally devastating to the church. Now, I don't want to get into kind of the bizarre demonology this morning. We don't have time for that. But we need to be reminded that we are in a fight. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, he said, fight what? The good fight of faith. Fight the good fight. We're in a fight. To become a Christian means you enter into a battle. Some of you thought being a Christian means that you won't be engaged in a battle anymore. No, just when you become a Christian, you actually are then engaged in the battle. Prior to that, you're not. It says, fight the good fight of faith in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, starting in verse, um, verse 10, Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord. And the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, listen to this, against the schemes of the devil. He has schemes. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
Verse 12, for we did not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against something supernatural. He's implying that we're in a wrestling match. Like, there's combat. Therefore, take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. There's a battle. We must be equipped for the battle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 6, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Okay, there's that imagery again. We see it? War. Wrestling. There's a battle. For though we walk by the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Be ready to punish every disobedience when our obedience is complete. Again, the imagery. There's a battle. We're waging war. You must be equipped for this battle. You must be ready. We must not be naive. But before we go any further, let's just ask the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you that we can gather and worship. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to be able to see our desperate need of the gospel, who illuminates your word. I pray today that you would equip us, that you would equip us to stand our ground, to fight, Help us to realize that we are in a spiritual battle. Father, we pray against the enemy, his servants, or works and effects in this place. In Christ's name, amen. Point, point number one, you need to know your enemy. You need to know your enemy. Okay, so Paul talks about waging warfare. He also talks about wrestling. Um, when, like, so my boys wrestle, and um, one of the things that you do as a wrestler, sometimes you want to know a little bit about the guy you're going to go wrestle. You want to know what their style is because everybody has a little bit different style and they, like, they're known for certain things. It's really good to know like, like what's this guy going to do? And one of the strategies of coaches, especially at the college level sometimes, is that, that like, you don't always know who they're going to send to you. This past week, my son in college had a match and um, they weighed three guys in at his weight. And he has wrestled all three of them before, but they all have a very different style of wrestling. So just as he went out onto the mat is when he figured out who he was going to wrestle. So in those next couple seconds, you have to strategize and plan, okay, these are the adjustments I'm going to make. See, it's an advantage to know your enemy, but we are in a battle. We are wrestling. We're in waging war. We need to know who our enemy is. What God's word tells us about him. 1 Peter 5. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That tells us something about him. He's like a roaring lion. He's prowling around, looking to devour someone, something. Now, lions, when they're prowling around, what are they looking for? They're looking for the weak, 
for those who are off by themselves, who aren't prepared, who aren't watching, who aren't looking. Isaiah, Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12, we learn a little about, about our enemy here. He says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Here Satan, is like the prophet Isaiah was telling us in his pride, he thought he could be like God or above God. And he began to talk to himself and he's like, I will be like this and I will be like the most high God. He's proud. He's arrogant. Pride likes to show off. You need to know a little about your enemy. Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven when God cast him down, threw him out when he sinned and subverted God's authority. Revelation 12. Revelation 12. Starting in verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman. Like, here's where we understand that a third of the angels need to know who your enemy is. A third of the angels, he, he brought a third of God's created angels with him. So what it just said there, a third, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. You need to know who he is. He swept them down with him. Verse 9 of chapter 12, it says this, And the great dragon was thrown down the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Devil just means diabolus, destroyer, Satan, slanderer. The great dragon, the serpent, he was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. You need to know who your enemy is. He's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. He deceives people. That's what he does. He's a slander. He lies. He's Diablos, he's a destroyer. He took the third of the angels with him. Verse 10. Of Revelation 12, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom over God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan, day and night, is accusing Christians before God. Day and night, he's accusing. He's making accusations. You need to know who he is. John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. When we lie, when we tell untruths, we're speaking 
Satan's native tongue. He's a liar. He lies to us. You need to know who your enemy is. He's a slander. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to kill and destroy. He's a murderer. Know your enemy. Know your opponent. Job 1, 7. Job 1, 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. What a creep. Honestly, he's prowling around. God's like, where'd you come from, Satan? Like from walking up and down on the earth. Back and forth, to and fro, looking for whom he may devour. Those who don't know who their enemy are, is. Those who aren't prepared. Those who don't understand his tactics. Those who are off by themselves. This is happening in the world today. You need to know your enemy. Number two, you need to know his tactics. He has tactics. He has things that he does. He has studied humanity for thousands of years. He knows how to get us to react. There's nothing new under the sun. He doesn't have a new trick for you that he hasn't already found successful in thousands and thousands of other people. You need to know his, attack, his tactics. It says in Revelation 12, 10, we just saw it. He's an accuser of the brethren. He accuses them day and night. He accuses you. He whispers in your ear, condemnation. He says, I know who you are. I know what you did last night. I know who you are. You can't be a Christian. You can't be a pastor. I know what you think. And I hear those voices sometimes. He's an accuser. And he goes before the father, says, and he accuses the brethren before the father both day and night. But I love this image. But Jesus is also there interceding for us. And when he makes an accusation, and he calls out my sin, Jesus is like, but the blood. He's interceding for us. You need to know his tactics. He's an accuser. Do we not see in culture and society today how he's using people just to accuse and accuse and accuse? So dissension and dissension and dissension? He does it through people. But the accusations that we hear the loudest, where do they take place? Between here and here. If you want to know where spiritual warfare is won or lost, it's all right here. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, take your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. If you want to engage in this battle, and your reality is if you're a Christian, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. Like, well, I don't want to fight. You have to. You have to. 
to know his tactics. He is a liar. John 8, 44, he is a liar. He lies to us. He started right with his first interaction with the very first of God's created mankind, Eve in the garden. What's he, did God really say? He said it right in Genesis 3. Like, he goes immediately to man and he says, did God really say? He lies. He wants us to doubt God's word. And Eve says, but God said if we eat this fruit, we will surely die. And he's like, God's a liar. You won't surely die. He lies. He will get you to doubt God's word. He will get you to compromise on God's word. He will get you to think that you're the exception to the rule. And the reality is in our culture, the Bible scripture is clear that in the last days, people will gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And he lies. You need to know his tactics. He's an accuser. He's a liar. He baits us. He causes us to doubt God's word. He baits us. He knows what bait you'll take. For some, it's lust. For some, it's porn. For some, it's food. For some, it's fear. For some, it's alcohol or other substances. For some, it's doubt. For some, it's bitterness. Because he knows if he can get you bitter, you will grieve the Holy Spirit of God that resides inside of you, and you will then not have the power to forgive. He knows what he's doing. If he can get you to live in sexual sin, he knows that you will grieve the Holy Spirit of God who resides inside of you, and you will feel powerless. And then he will use that, and he will condemn and condemn and condemn. Same old thing, over and over and over. That's what he does. It's his tactics. Bitterness, Hebrews said, the writer of Hebrews said, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness grows up, and by it many are defiled. If we become bitter and unforgiving, we fail to obtain the grace of God, the power of God to forgive to follow the command that he has given us. And he baits us with bitterness all the time. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says that we would not be outwitted by Satan. 2 Corinthians 2.11, for we will not be outwitted, outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his schemes. You got to know his schemes. You got to know his plan. You got to know his design. You need to know his tactics. But in context, 2 Corinthians 2.11 is talking about forgiveness and bitterness. But we won't be outwitted by him with his tactic of bitterness because we know his scheme. But some people just don't care. They're just unwilling to engage in the battle and they just, because it's easier just to stay bitter. It's easier often to not deal with our sin. Ephesians 6, 11, stand against the schemes of the devil, his tactics and designs. And we open ourselves up to him and we give him a foothold in our lives. 
When we walk in willful, unrepentant sin, when we walk in bitterness, when we slander, when we are addicted to substances, when we allow sinful, wicked entertainment into our lives, Do you know he blinds people? I don't mean physically, although he can. He blinds people spiritually. 2 Corinthians 4.4 He has blinded the minds of those who are perishing so they cannot see the light of the glorious gospel. Do you ever share the gospel with someone who's not saved and it's just like they don't get it? And you're like, man, I must not have done a good enough job. No, no, you probably did fine. Until God opens their eyes, until God removes the blinders that the God of this age has placed upon them, they're not going to see. So we must pray that, the, that our God, the one true God, would remove the blinders that the God of this age has placed on those who are perishing so they can see their need of the gospel. I don't know his tactics. He masquerades as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11. He masquerades as an angel of light. He tries to act like God. He masquerades, as a, he parades around as an angel of light. He tries to do supernatural things, and he can, and he does to fool people. One thing I realized this week as I was studying, Jesus came as a prophet, priest, and king. Satan seeks to be a prophet, to speak, but he speaks lies. As a king, he wants to rule people's hearts. As a priest, he, he wants to provide them functional saviors and make them idol worshipers. See what he does? See his tactics? You gotta know who your enemy is. You must understand that you are in a battle. Satan tempts people to sin. He tempts you to sin. In Matthew 4, it says that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. God didn't tempt him. But God allowed it to happen. Now, I think sometimes we don't understand. Being tempted isn't sin. It's what you do with it. Like you can't help that a thought crosses your mind, but you can help if you entertain it, right? Those are the things, like you have to know what he's doing. Do you know that Satan can cause people to be sick, to even be crippled. In Luke chapter 13, it said there was a woman bent over whom Satan had bound for 18 years, and God healed, Christ healed her. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who's sick or bent over is because of sin or because of Satan. But sometimes it is. I believe I personally experienced that about a year ago, a little over a year ago. I was in the DR, and I went to a Haitian bate. It's like a community where Haitian immigrants have lived in the DR, and Haitians are really into voodoo. And the day we went there, 
they knew we were coming. And almost all of them have witch doctors and little places where they practice their voodoo. And I didn't think anything about, of it. But when we were there that day, they were in their little temple. They were doing some sort of rituals and incantations and heard the music. And I got to be honest, I just sort of like, greater is he who is in me than he is in the world. And that is true, right? But they said it was the first time they had ever gone to this battalion and heard these, them practicing voodoo while we were there. And I don't know what happened, but I will tell you the next day I felt ill. Sick like I've never been. Stuff was, I don't want to be graphic, but I'm just going to be a little bit. Stuff was coming out of me. It was awful. And I couldn't get out of bed. In the DR, you can get a doctor and a nurse to come to your room for like 250 bucks and give you IVs. Can you imagine that here? Be like $350,000. People prayed for me and it broke. I don't know. I was also on a trip one time in Africa. And um, somebody who was with us became ill. And myself and a, a man that I know from over there that we were doing ministry with, we were in the room with this person, two, three in the morning, praying for, praying for them. But I was concerned that there was something demonic happening. And Destin and I were talking. We decided we needed to get them to the hospital. And when I went to help them get up out of bed, it's the first time this ever happened to me. Somebody else spoke to me. And said, Steve, let him lay. I was terrified. I'm going to be honest. We didn't. We got him up. Now knowing what I know now, I'd be like, how do you know my name? Who do you think you are? Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Now I said I wasn't going to get all weird this morning. But I just wanted you to, like, this is real. This is real stuff that happens. And I think in American Christianity, I'll be honest, I've seen and experienced things in parts, in third world countries that I've never seen or experienced here. And I think so many times Christians, teachers in the church, haven't gone to other countries and have seen enough to know what is really happening in the spirit realm. And we become naive in our in our sterile little American Western Christianity. And we don't understand the intensity and the complexity of the battle you need to know as tactics. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, we see that, Paul, or that Satan fights against the mission. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul said, 
because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us again and again. Paul said, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us again and again. He would, like, Satan can hinder the mission. But we know from the book of Job that he can do nothing more than God allows him to do. He can't. Everything he does has to go through the hand of God. Ephesians 6, he has schemes, schemes of the devil. Here's one of his tactics. He wants to push people to extremes. He wants to push people to extremes. One of the ways that we see that happening in the church today, and I would say guard your heart. When it comes to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, he's trying to push the church into one of two extremes. What I would say is kind of like the circus charismatics. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to be disrespectful. I want to try to be respectful. Or push people over here to this extreme cessationist camp where they don't believe that there's anything supernatural happening anymore, that God doesn't really give supernatural gifts to people anymore, that God never speaks in a still small voice. And soon as I say that, I believe that God speaks to us in a personal way. People then believe that I'm challenging scripture. No, this, the canon of scripture is closed. This alone is sufficient and inerrant. But the Holy Spirit resides in us and he leads and he directs. He works through the mouths of preachers. He works through our families. He, but he's pushing the church into one or two extremes over into this kind of like the circus, crazy, charismatic, or like we don't believe that the Spirit of God does anything supernatural anymore. And it's almost like in that extreme, it's like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Word. But that's not true, right? It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the authority and the sufficiency and the inerrancy of God's Word. But it must be under the illumination of what? The Holy Spirit. And he's pushing people to these extremes. John 4, 24, God is searching for those who will worship him in spirit and truth because God is spirit and truth. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There are those who say, well, we're truth church. And then there's others who say, well, we're spirit truth, a church. And I would submit to you, you can't have the spirit without the truth and you don't have the truth without the spirit. They're inseparable. It's not one or the other. It's both or nothing. But he's pushing us. And usually all he does to push us into one ditch or the other is just get us to react to the other extreme. He doesn't care what ditch he gets you in. He just wants you into a ditch. That's why I always say, like in everything in life, try to stay away from extremes. Find the middle ground. The enemy wants to push us into extremes. Why? Because he wants to take our power. Another way we're seeing that happen in the church today, and I've talked to you about it several weeks ago, there's something called orthodoxy. We die for orthodoxy. To be a Christian means you must believe in orthodoxy. Uh, that means uh, just like, things that are close-handed, the deity of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth, the necessity of conversion. I could go on and on. We die for those things. Then there's doctrine. Doctrine is like things like you know, how we believe the Holy Spirit works. We defend our position. 
But we don't kill each other. We don't die for those things. And then there's something called conviction. I have personal convictions. You have personal convictions. And in those areas, we're charitable. But the enemy, one of his tactics is he tries to get us to die for our convictions instead of being charitable. He's slick. In Luke 22, in Luke 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. That second you is plural in the text. Meaning not just Peter, but all the disciples. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. I love this, but Jesus says, ah, but I prayed for you that your faith would remain. I prayed for you. Don't think for a moment that Satan isn't still demanding to have people to sift them, to shake them, to separate them out, to cause their faith to waver, to not remain strong. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 5. Three through five. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when our obedience is complete. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. You know what a stronghold is often? It's a pattern of thinking. It's a rut in our brain. Sometimes those ruts, those patterns of thinking, those strongholds form in our lives because of things that were done to us. Sometimes it's because of things we've done to ourselves. Sin patterns, pornography, alcohol, whatever it may be, these things that have allowed these ruts, these strongholds. I was listening to a guy by the name of Jim Long this week, and he was talking about how, like, growing up, and even into his 20s, he always just thought he was stupid, thought he was dumb. He said, you know why I thought that? Because my family told me I was dumb. And he said, it allowed a stronghold in my life, a rut, to form that I just thought I was dumb. He said, all of a sudden, I saw how the enemy was using that in my life to hold me back, and that I wasn't dumb, that I was who God created me to be. And I was able to stop and get out of that rut. But here's what happens. You've, some of you have allowed, whether it's like thinking incorrectly about yourself, not understanding what your identity is truly in Christ, not allowing like pornography or lust or other things to shape ruts in our brain, and it develops strongholds. And you know what happens with a car when you get into a rut? It's hard to get back out, and the bigger the rut is, the harder it is to get out, right? 
And ruts don't just go away. Some of you think, well, once I'm a Christian and I repent, it's just going to go away. No, it's not. The enemy's going to continue to dangle that bait. He's going to continue to push on your wheels to get you to go back into the rut. And those ruts go away after sometimes years of crucifying your flesh and saying no to those thoughts and saying no to those lusts and saying no to that sin. And you know what happens to ruts in a field? Over time, through the freeze and thaw process, they what? They disappear. Now, sometimes it, it can take years and there'll still be a semblance of it there. But it doesn't have the same pull and the same control. His tactics. You got to know his tactics. James 3, 14 and 16 say, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Some of you have allowed ruts of jealousy, covetousness, and discontentment to form in your brains for years. And he just pushes you back in there, pushes you back in there. And where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there, this is a promise, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You need to know his tactics. Ephesians 2, 2 says he's the prince of the power of the air. He prowls around like a roaring lion. You got to know his tactics. And then number three, you got to know how to fight. You have to know how to fight. James 4. James 4 tells us that we are to resist the devil. Resist him. Resist him firm in the faith. Like we're told over and over that we have to fight against him. James 4, 7 and 8. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can resist him. And if you resist him, he'll flee from you. But some of you are just resigned. You can't resist him. But you can resist him. And you must resist him. And if you resist him, he will what? Flee from you. That's what it says. Some of you don't resist. You've just resigned yourself to let him attack and attack and attack. And James like, resist him and he will flee from you. You don't have to submit. You don't have to come under. You don't have to give in. Resist him. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. We can resist and overcome him. You have to know how to fight. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Resist him. Stand up and fight. 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him firm in the faith. How do we resist him? It's actually not that complex. We resist him by First and foremost, by killing sin. The Puritan John Owen, I think, rightly said, be killing sin or sin will what? Be killing you. If you want to resist the devil, you need to repent. You need to confess. You need to rid your life of sin. You cannot allow these patterns of sin and thinking to go unchecked. James 1.14 says that each man is tempted when lured and enticed by his own evil desires. 
We all have evil desires. We do. Mine are different than yours. And we're tempted. When, because Satan knows. Now, he doesn't know because he can read my mind. Satan can't read your mind. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. How does he know what you're tempted by? By listening to you talk and watch how you react. He knows what he got you with before, so he tries it again and again and again. Why would he change it up if the old way is working? James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Now in context, James there is talking about those who are going to the elders for prayer, for healing. And he's acknowledging that sometimes people are sick because of sin. So he's like, confess your sins so that you may be healed. But there's also a biblical principle here. If I confess a sin to you, that doesn't mean I'm forgiven. But confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. See, Satan uses the power of secrecy to keep us in strongholds, in ruts, in patterns of sin. And it's when we drag it out into the light and expose it to light that darkness what flees. Some of you have patterns of thinking or behaviors in your life that you've been fighting and fighting and fighting. And I would submit to you, you're going to keep fighting them until you confess, till you get accountable with someone, till you share your sin with someone else and allow them to hold you accountable. Some people just want accountability from a distance. No, the Lord wants you to be accountable to people in your life, in your community. You got to know how to fight them. Some of you need to get radical. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Now, those were hyperboles, deliberate exaggerations. It doesn't literally mean gouge your eye out or chop your hand off. Because he knows that sin is in the heart. What he's saying is be radical. Be radical. I'm just going to be honest, like, probably gals as well, but guys... Like, there's some of you just need to get rid of your technology. You need to do something different with it. Like, you've been trying to kick pornography for so long, but you're not changing anything. Something has to change. Like, get radical. Some of you have relationships with people that you know you shouldn't have. It's not good for you. But you're afraid of what they might think. You're afraid of what people will say. Who cares? The other day I was at a barber shop and the barber said to me, you know, he's ama- he said, I'm amazed at how we so often will risk hell for a minute and a half of pleasure. Now this theology wasn't great. But it's true. You gotta know his tactics. You gotta know how to fight. Some of you need to get radical. 
There are some battles that you just will not win unless you are a praying person. Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. If you're not a praying person, <clears throat> you will lose. He will kick your proverbial butt. He will. There's some spiritual battles that just will not be won without prayer, without you being a praying person. Ephesians 6, 17 and 18, praying at all times in the spirit. <clears throat> resist him and he will flee from you. You resist him in prayer. You resist him. You resist him. Luke 21, 36. Jesus said, but stay awake at all times praying that you have strength to escape all the things that you're going through. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We fight and we wrestle against the prince of the power of the air in prayer. I would just submit to you, some of you have been battling something or maybe just really struggling with something for a season. God works in people's lives when people fast. Fasting. We don't have time to hit this, but I can tell you there was a season in my life where I desperately needed God to do something in my life. I've been asking him to. And it's not a magic pill. It's not a silver bullet to fast and then everything's going to go away for you. But I did a 30-day fast. And God radically changed me. I've seen it in other people's lives. We fight we fight with the word of God, Ephesians 6. It says that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Like if you don't know the word of God, if you're not in this book for yourself on a regular basis, feeding upon it, expect to get your proverbial butt handed to you by the enemy. Because it's the only thing you have to hit him with. That's it. That's all you got. It's the weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And if you don't have the word of God in you, you have nothing to fight with. And you know what I'm amazed at? You're like, well, I can't memorize. I, like, I don't memorize well either, but what I found over and over and over again, that God calls to mind the word of God that I need by the spirit of God in the time of my need. You got to put it in for him to call it back out. He's not just going to supernaturally download it in there. He could, but he won't. to be a person of the book. You got to know your weapon. Use it rightly. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman rightly handling the word of God. Jesus himself, when he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, after a 40-day fast, he's hungry, and Satan says to him, hey, if you're hungry, you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. Now, it wouldn't have been wrong for him to turn a stone into bread. Not necessarily that evil of a thing to do. But he knew that Satan was tempting him and he said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
And again, he asked him to bow down and worship him, or like if, if he would give it, he would give him all these kingdoms. And Jesus responded again, again, it is written, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God and him only. Then he told him to go up in the temple and to jump down, that God would catch him and prove that he was. And Jesus, like, no, it is written. You've heard it said that you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Jesus, the Son of God, fought using the Word of God. He can't read your minds, He can't read your thoughts, but He hears our words. He watches our actions. Sometimes we bring the assault of the enemy upon ourselves just by the words that we speak. Power and death, or life and death are in the power of the tongue. Blessing and cursing are in the power of the tongue. Sometimes families throw the door wide open for Satan in their homes just by the words that they speak. But here's the good news. Well, here's the bad news. <laughs> Satan's real. He has minions, servants, demons. But he's God's devil. No power rivals God's. None. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. Satan will not win. 1 John 3, 8, The Son of Man has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14, Christ took on human nature that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Revelation 20 verse 10 speaks of when he will be cast into the lake of fire where he will suffer torment forever and ever. His days are numbered. But you need to know you have an enemy. You need to know his tactics. And you need to know how to fight. Three primary ways I gave you today to fight. Confess. The whole of a Christian's life is one of repentance. Confess your sin. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You want to know how to fight? Confess, repent. You want to know how to fight? You better be a person of prayer. You want to know how to fight? You better know the word of God and be in the word of God on a regular basis because it is your weapon. You need to know it because if you don't, you have nothing to hit him with. But in this life, he is still prowling around. He's still looking for whom he may devour. But Jesus came. And lived and died and rose victorious over Satan, sin, hell, and death. And when we take communion, we're reminded of that. We're reminded of that in Colossians Colossians chapter 2. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. As a gospel-centered church today, we will take communion, remembering that through Christ's body broken and his blood shed, he has triumphed over Satan and put him to open shame. Communion is for those who have put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. So if you're here today and you haven't yet made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here with us. But scripture is clear that if you take communion in an unworthy way, you will eat and drink judgment upon yourself. So if you're not a Christian, you're here today, we welcome you. We're so glad you're here. We would just ask you not take communion with us today. There's no judgment. Just take the elements and place them back on the tray when you head back out or throw them in the trash either way. But for those of us who are in Christ, who've been forgiven, and remembering that Jesus triumphed over the prince of the power of the air and put him to open shame. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had broken it, he had given thanks. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you do in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice that you did disarm the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. We thank you that we can resist. And I pray that today you would renew the fight in all of our lives, in all of our hearts, in all of our minds to stand firm and to resist, to engage in the battle, to fight, to be people of repentance and confession, to be people of prayer and of your word. And may you be glorified in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Have a great week. Remember the mission and above all, put on love.